primary care knowledge-based eczema. Hello and welcome to today's episode. Um, We're talking to Dr. Rachel Hilton about eczema. Yeah, Dr. Hilton specialises in dermatology and people may remember her from our previous episodes. Um, We spoke to her for an episode on generalised itching and another episode all about urticaria, um, which if you haven't listened to them, we'd recommend them highly. Um, They were absolutely fantastic and they're full of really great practice transforming gems of information. Yes, absolutely. Um, And in today's episode, we will cover eczema from the beginning with an introduction to what it is and some important differentials. Uh, We then get Dr. Hilton's take on how to manage it, including managing flares and how to explain different bits of the management to patients. Yeah, and then we cover her advice on navigating moisturisers and emollients um, and on steroids, when to put them on, what strengths, what preparations, and when to consider other treatments such as topical calcineurin inhibitors um, or what she does for what she does for flares. We then talk a little bit about when patients or parents are worried about allergy-driven eczema. Yes, we hope you enjoy. Um, so we are going to kick off with some introductions. Um, obviously, Rachel, you've been on the podcast before, but um, would you like to introduce yourself for anyone who maybe didn't listen to those episodes? Of course. Thank you for inviting me back again. I am currently working as specialty doctor in Wigan and Lee in dermatology. And in that job, I've got uh, a role in both the community dermatology service in our area, looking after patients with eczema and psoriasis, but I also work in secondary care in general dermatology clinics. I was a GP for 23 years, so my background is very much primary care. Fabulous. Um, So we thought we'd start by getting you to define eczema for us and describe its typical presentation. Well, the word eczema is synonymous with dermatitis. The two mean exactly the same thing, just that one's in Latin and one's Greek. So you can take your pick. So essentially, I mean, literally, it means inflamed skin. The skin is typically very, very dry and rough. So people prone to eczema are prone to having very dry skin. And the skin is very often when affected, it's very red, inflamed, which means very itchy for the individual. It's an incredibly itchy condition, not the sort of itch that you can ignore. It's the degree of itch that will wake you up repeatedly during the night, sometimes accompanied by scabs or blisters. And so being on the skin, being very visible to others, it can have quite a tremendous impact upon a person's well-being and social confidence. Yeah. In terms of typical presentation, well, we've got to say straight away then that there are there are several common types of eczema. It is not just one condition. There is atopic eczema. That's the eczema that goes hand in hand with a predisposition to asthma or hay fever. And atopic eczema will typically present in infancy or in the early years. There's then the eczema to which any of us are prone, particularly the elderly, which is essentially eczema due to having dry skin, Uh, dry simply due to age or dry and exacerbated by other comorbidities. We shouldn't forget seborrheic eczema, which we'll often see in infants. Um, But one big difference is that in infants with seborrheic eczema, the skin is not nearly as dry as it is with atopic eczema. Mm. And these children with seborrheic eczema are happy children, as opposed to the children with atopic eczema that are typically, when they first present, quite miserable because they're not sleeping. In fact, none of the family are sleeping because of it. So children with seborrheic eczema are much less itchy. It's nice to break it down like that. Well, I guess another fact I've not covered there is the sort of typical distribution uh, of these different types of eczema. With atopic eczema presenting in infancy, you'll typically see it presenting on the infant's face. And it'll gradually then migrate to the limbs and particularly the limb flexures, not just at the elbow and knee creases, but also around the wrists and around the ankles. In infants with seborrheic eczema, the distribution is rather different. They often have quite pronounced cradle cap. And then you'll see in the neck flexures that the skin there is rather red and macerated. And it may also affect the axillary flexures too and the genital area. So rather different distribution between the two sites of eczema in infancy. In the elderly, when they have 
eczema due to dry skin, you're most likely to see it on areas such as the upper back and on the lower legs as well, where the skin can take on a, a crazy paving appearance where cracks start to appear and will often term that asteatotic eczema. Oh, yes, I've heard that term before. I, I see it and I'm, I struggle to pronounce it. <laughs> so it's good, good to hear it pronounced. There you go, asteatotic. <laughs> um, you've talked about the different types of eczema and the different distributions, which is going to probably have a bearing on the next question. We were wondering what the main differentials to consider would be. I think you've always got to have an eye open for skin infections. A skin infection such as a fungal dermatophyte infection can be itchy and can present with red patches of of broken rough skin. But one of the differences between eczema and fungal infection is that whereas fungal infection is itchy, it's it's much less itchy. It's not the sort of itch that will wake you in the middle of the night, the sort of itch that you can't ignore, whereas eczema very, very much is. You've also got to have an eye to infections or infestations such as scabies because the the main rash that patients present with when they have scabies, that's the sort of papular erythematous rash on the trunk, that is really just a secondary eczematous reaction to the scabies infestation. And the scabies infestation is really focused on the areas such as the palm, on the wrist, maybe on the feet but the patient will come in with the rash that's on the trunk. So that, that type of papular rash should, should have you thinking about looking for scabies burrows and asking about the contact history. In young adults who present with patchy eczema, you might want to consider whether it could be guttate psoriasis. But a good clue there would be that with guttate psoriasis, the scale on the surface is more pronounced and the scale is really quite silvery when the rash is psoriatic in origin. Another one to think about would be pityriasis rosea, common in young adults, secondary to a preceding viral infection. Generally speaking, though, in pityriasis rosea, the patches that you see on the prim- primarily on the trunk are all very similar in size, whereas with eczema, you're likely to see quite a lot of variation in terms of the size of patches of affected skin. And you won't, in in pityriasis rosea, find that the rash is predominantly in the flexures, for example. The distribution will probably give the diagnosis away there, I think. Yeah, well, those are really helpful tips. I would think in terms of the patients that we see referred into the community eczema clinic, who are referred in with eczema but don't actually turn out to have eczema, the most common misdiagnosis is when the patient actually had a fungal infection, had a dermatophyte infection. Well, that's a good tip. <laughs> so can you talk us through your approach to talking to patients and families about the diagnosis of eczema and the management? Well, I'm primarily going to be talking now about atopic eczema. Okay. So the, the sort of explanation that I'm going to give to parents when I've made a diagnosis of atopic eczema in their children. I'm going to, I will have already established whether or not there's a family history of eczema or not just eczema, but atopy. Mm-hmm. So it may just be that neither parent has had eczema themselves, but they may have, maybe have a history of hay fever and or asthma. So I'll explain that these three conditions often go hand in hand and that the predisposition to developing one of them in their children is something that the child has inherited Mm -hmm. from one or both parents. I'll explain that when the child has atopic eczema, that their skin really isn't producing either the quality or quantity of natural lipids or natural grease, as as I'll explain it. And I'll often at this stage, I'll use the analogy of a brick wall to explain what this grease does because I think in society, grease often has negative connotations, doesn't it? We don't like to be greasy, for yeah. example. But it performs a vital function in the skin. So what I'll do, I'll explain that if we're going to use this analogy of a brick wall, that the bricks in the wall are the equivalent of the cells in our skin. And that the, the grease in our skin is doing the same job as mortar performs in the brick wall. So in a good brick wall... 
that's in good condition, you'll find that the mortar's filling in all the cracks between the bricks. It's keeping the outside outside and the inside inside. And that's very much that the lipids in our skin, very much the job that the lipids in our skin perform. So they're keeping the moisture in our bodies inside and keeping the cells in the skin moisturised. They're keeping infections that are outside our skin outside and keeping them away from the deeper layers of the skin. They're keeping irritants that are in our environment. We're, we're surrounded by irritants and it's keeping those outside the skin rather, again, allowing the irritants into the dermis, into the deeper layer where the irritants would cause inflammation to occur. So in an individual who's got atopic eczema, in the most basic management that we put in place is to preserve the existing lipid levels in the skin and also to add to those lipids to increase the greasiness of the skin, to reduce the dryness and to reduce the number of times that the skin becomes inflamed. And the most basic way that we do this is by starting off by looking at how that person is washing the skin. Yeah. Because all commercial wash products, anything that lathers or bubbles, so that's every bar of soap, every bubble bath, every shower gel, every liquid soap, everything that bubbles is detergent in chemical terms. So you can't get away from the bottom line that if, if the product lathers, it's a detergent. And of course, detergents take out grease, take away grease by virtue of the surfactants that they contain. You know, we use detergents to wash our plates, to wash our clothes, to take away the grease. So if we wash ourselves in detergent, we're taking away grease. And when you when your skin is dry, that will make the dryness worse. So the most simple management that we've put into place with, with atopic eczema is to use an emollient as a soap substitute so we're avoiding any detergent on the skin at all for washing. Yeah. And of course, the other big way in which we use emollients is as moisturisers. That's such a good explanation. Yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> like, I understand it a lot better right now. <laughs> I think it's also worthwhile saying that we now know that the pour-in bath emollients are not actually effective at all. You'll all know the type of products, they're, they're liquid, they come in a bottle and they can be poured directly into the bath water, making the bath water go very milky. But there was a big study called the BATHE study that was performed down by the University of Southampton in 2018. And they took two big groups of children, both with atopic eczema. In one group, they simply omitted the pour-in emollient from their management plan, but kept everything else in the management plan the same. And in the other group, they didn't omit the pour-in bath emollient. And they found that the pour-in bath emollient was making no difference whatsoever to eczema control. Mm. So nowadays, these things shouldn't really be shouldn't really be prescribed. But I think we we must differentiate between the pour-in bath emollients and then the emollients that are put on the skin and then rinsed off. These are the type that I, I, I've always liked to prescribe. These are definitely effective. So, you know, emollients like these tend to be either the very light lotions, or in fact, they could be the light lotions, it could be some of the cream emollients, it could be some of the greasier emollients that do emulsify. These are best put on the skin before the skin becomes wet and then rinsed off. So before, before they get in, they pop them on all over and then they rinse off oh, okay and I think there are several reasons for that one is that when you've got eczema on the skin coming into contact with water is painful mm -hmm. it water irritates yeah. and if you've got a protective layer of emollient on your skin first of all then bathing becomes less uncomfortable mm -hmm. the other thing is that if you try and add an emollient to skin that's already wet the emollient just slides off your skin it doesn't really I suspect pick up dirt and dust in quite the same way whereas if you add it to dry skin you literally baste yourself or, or ba baste the child in the emollient mm. already it's going to be sticking to dirt and dust so that when the emollient is then rinsed off with copious water in the shower in the bath you're going to carry the dirt and dust off the skin which is what you want at the end of the day Yes, lovely. Um, so it was talking about the um, emollients there. Um, obviously, there are so many different types of options. Um, how do you go about categorising them and deciding which ones to use in different situations? Well, uh, an emollient basically is just a mixture of water and oil 
or Greece. It's an emulsion of the two. And so there is a spectrum of emollients that range from those that have got a very high water content and very little grease. These would be things like the light lotions, like Cetraben lotion or Dermal 500 lotion. Mm -hmm. Then ranging through the thinner creams, like E45 cream, like Diprobase cream, ranging through the thicker creams, like double base gel, through to the ointments that are pure grease with very little or no added water. So think of the think of emollients as being on a spectrum. Mm, now, if you think about what I was saying before, that dry skin is essentially skin that's lacking natural lipids or lacking grease, the best moisturisers are the greasiest ones. Now, which one you go for depends a lot upon personal preference. That's the patient's personal preference, not necessarily your personal preference. With a patient that is an infant, one of the beauties of managing an infant is that they don't particularly have a personal preference. <laughs> but obviously, the older the individual gets, the more that you have to start to take their personal preference into account. You've also got to take account of the body site that you're treating because a greasier emollient is tolerated on some areas of the body better than others. So, for example, an adult will tolerate a greasy emollient, say, on an area such as the lower legs, but would not tolerate the same emollient on the hands because they'd be constantly dropping things or leaving sticky fingerprints everywhere. Mm. So yeah. it's commonplace that we'll prescribe two, maybe three different emollients simply so the patient has a range of greasiness, a, a range of emollients to choose from according to which bit of them they're moisturising and also when they're moisturising. So people will tolerate a much greasier emollient overnight than they would do so during the day. And these are all factors to take into account. Another factor is the season, the season of the year, because once the weather goes colder in autumn, we all put on our central heating, quite rightly, and the air inside our houses gets drier. And so the skin dries out more. And we every year, we will always see our patients with atopic eczema becoming worse during the autumn and winter seasons. Yep. So we may well at that time have to encourage one of two things, either that they simply moisturise more often during the day, but that may not be possible. So, for example, with a child that's at school, it's just not possible to very often to get in and moisturise them at lunchtime. So we may also provide a greasier emollient for use because that will have a longer lasting moisturising effect upon the skin. But conversely, when you're in the summer months, in the very hot weather, a greasy emollient just does, doesn't feel nice on the skin, just doesn't feel comfortable. So you may find patients using less and needing a lighter emollient to be able to change to. You can't really do an adequate job by prescribing just one emollient and expecting the patient to manage, a, to manage different areas of the body at different times of the day, at different times of the year with just that one product. I think you'll be, you'll be shortchanging them. Yeah, that's a really good point. Another thing to think about with emollients is that many of them have additives which we can prescribe and use to their advantage. For example, there's the dermal range of emollients which contains chlorhexidine. So we'll often introduce these if the patient has been having frequent exacerbations due to secondary bacterial infection. Although I can't stress enough that I would never rely on this as a way of treating current infection. But it's one of the strategies that we can use to try and reduce the incidence of further infections in the future. Another very useful additive when used correctly is urea. Urea is very good at breaking down skin that's become very dry and hard, for example, on feet. So a popular one is Flexitol Heal Balm, which contains 25% urea. One thing you need to know about urea, though, is it's, it's quite irritant sometimes, particularly on young skins. Mm. There are other products that out there on the market, other emollients that contain lower percentages of urea, such as Calmurid cream, which contains 10%. Uh, there's also Balneum Plus, which contains 5%. And other examples are Hydromol Intensive and Eucerin. But the BNF will list all the percentages for you. So 
another example of when one of the urea containing emollients can be useful might be in a condition such as keratosis pilaris, which is, is slightly different from eczema, admittedly, but there's dry skin that you want to sort of soften and break down. So urea is very useful in that respect. And one final word, really, when prescribing moisturisers is please prescribe enough. And you can refer here to the nice guidelines, which I'm sure will be referenced at the end of the at the end of the podcast. Yeah. An adult will need at least 500 grams of emollient as moisturiser a week. Oh wow! And also an equal quantity of emollient to wash in a week. Wow! And it is so common to hear to hear from patients who are being prescribed just 500 grams per month. And if they dare to ask for a repeat prescription earlier than that, they get told they've had it. They know they've got to wait for more. Gosh. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> Big amounts. Yeah. Um, so I guess we talked about the um, the different range of emollients there. Um, and obviously the same applies for steroids. Um, so how do you decide on the strength and preparation of a steroid to use in practice in eczema? I'm so glad you're asking me about topical steroids because I think underuse of topical steroids is almost universal amongst the patients that I see having been referred from primary care. Mm, It really is because I think there is an awful lot of uncertainty and anxiety about using topical steroids, not just amongst primary care clinicians, but also from pharmacy staff because the pharmacy have to put a label on every topical steroid that says apply thinly or sparingly which ramps up the patient's anxiety and also the general public all seem to know that topical steroids can cause skin thinning without really knowing what skin thinning is or what it looks like so I'm very grateful for the chance to be able to talk about how to use topical steroids correctly because they are so useful in managing atopic eczema they're, they're essential, really. There are four different strengths, going from mild through moderate, potent to superpotent. And one thing to be aware of is that there is a vast difference between those potencies. I'll often use the analogy of alcohols when trying to explain this point to patients and parents, because I think very often all topical steroids are tarred with the same brush. But really, if you, to, if you were to liken them to different alcohols, you could say that a mild topical corticosteroid, such as hydrocortisone, is like shandy. Whereas a moderate topical steroid will be like wine, a potent topical steroid like spirits, and a super potent like meths. Wow. <laughs> and I didn't, dream, I, di- I didn't dream this analogy Um, thanks go to the consultant dermatologist that I heard speaking very early in my dermatology career, but I found the analogy very, very useful ever ever since. Just to sort of explain to parents particularly that just as there's a vast difference between meths and shandy, similarly there is between the highest and the lowest potencies of topical steroids. So which steroids am I going to use? Which are one of those potencies? It varies according to the age of the person I'm treating, the body site I'm treating, whether or not there is natural or artificial occlusion of the site. And I'll explain all, I'll explain all of those better. In terms of the body site, it really depends upon how thick the skin naturally is as to the strength of steroid that you require to penetrate through the epidermis, the top layer of skin, into the dermis, the lower layer, because that's where you really need it to be working. So we've all got naturally thicker skin on the hands and feet, then on the limbs, and also on the trunk, on on the back and on the front. We've got thinner skin on the face and also in the axilla and in the groin. But as well, in the axilla and in the groin, we've got natural occlusion occurring there. So because we naturally stand and sit with skin against skin in the axilla and groin, that occlusion increases the penetration of the topical steroid through to the dermis. So in an adult, I would tend to favour a moderate topical steroid on the face, in the axilla or in the groin and genital area. I rarely or never prescribe a mild 
topical steroid for an adult. It's just too weak. It's unnecessarily weak. I would tend to use a mod, a potent or super potent topical steroid when treating eczema on the limbs or trunk of an adult. In, in infants and young children, I would tend to favour a mild or moderate topical steroid on any area. But in some of our children with atopic eczema, we do have to go up to a potent topical steroid on the limbs and the trunk. Mm. In treating atopic eczema, I would never use in any age a super potent topical steroid in the genital area, in the axillae or on the face. And I have never yet ever used a super potent topical steroid when treating children. When treating the very elderly, we're not too concerned about the effect upon their skin of using that topical steroid for the next 10, 20, 30 years. We're just bothered about quality of life, about getting them a good night's sleep. And I'm very likely to go to straight to super potent when treating anywhere other than the face or genital area. Because okay. I just want to get good control quickly. That's a nice way of thinking of it, actually. Yes, I'm sorry it was a rather long-winded explanation, but I think it just goes to show that there are quite a few different factors to think about. But as long as you, as long as you choose the appropriate potency at the onset, I don't tend to step down. Stepping down potencies is something that everybody seems to have heard about at some point in the medical medical training. But it's actually much more effective to continue the same potency until you get clearance of the eczema. Because then, you you know, I tell my patient that they, doesn't need, they don't need to put on the topical steroid when on the days when the eczema isn't there. So they get steroid-free days. And it's much better to get steroid-free days and then restart the same potency of topical steroid when the eczema comes back rather than step down to a lower potency before the eczema is cleared and then ironically go on using the lower potency for longer before you get steroid-free days and therefore overall ending up using more topical steroid. Yeah. So carrying on the same potency until the skin is clear is the way that I would do it. I would not impose any limitation upon the number of days that the patient can use their topical steroid for. This is in any patient on any area of the body. I would simply be sure that I've chosen the right potency for the right body area because all too often we hear from patients who were told to stop using their topical steroid after so many days, so many weeks, and they'll tell us that the skin was just just improving at that point when they stopped the steroid because they'd been told to, and then, of course, the eczema came bouncing back. And ironically, it is invariably the case that when patients have been told to only use their topical steroid for a certain number of days or weeks, they're rarely told how long before they can restart it again. And I think that's a much more complicated set of instructions than simply saying to the patient, when the eczema's there, you treat it. On the days when it's not there, you don't treat it. Another very practical point is that it really is important to tell the patient the order that you expect them to put on their topical products. Because, of course, by now we've already talked about moisturisers and now we're talking about topical steroids. There are essentially two choices. And I'll tell you what the choices are and you can decide what you think is more user-friendly. One way of doing it is to apply your topical steroid first, applying the product accurately to the areas of red itchy eczema. Then you have to wait 30 minutes before you apply your emollient because if you were to apply your emollient after a shorter gap, you would simply dilute the topical steroid and, and spread the steroid over the surrounding skin. Yeah. So you've got to put your steroid on, stand there waiting to get dressed for 30 minutes and then put your emollient on. Or... You can put your emollient on first, so covering all areas of the body with your emollient, then straight away, without any need to wait, you apply the appropriate topical steroid to the appropriate area of the body, wherever the patches of red itchy eczema are at that particular time. And as you can as you can probably sense from the tone of my voice, I very much favour the second way <laughs> of doing it because it's so much more practical. Yeah. 
Another top tip is to advise the patient to ignore the label that the chemist has to apply to every tube of topical steroid, the one that says apply thinly or sparingly. They should ignore that, but think of applying the steroid accurately just to red inflamed areas of eczema, making sure that they apply enough of the product to feel that they've covered or coloured in the red area. Mm preparations we're going to ask you about yeah because with any given topical steroid molecule the ointment form of it as opposed to the cream will always contain fewer additives so it'll be less allergenic so for some patients that have very sensitive skins and even have developed already some contact allergies it's worthwhile looking at giving them the ointment rather than the cream form When you're treating the scalp, you definitely don't want to give an ointment or cream because it's going to be too sticky. You want to give a lotion. But certain preparations such as betamethasone scalp lotion, there are certain brands which contain a greater amount of alcohol, such as Betnovate scalp lotion, as opposed to some which contain a lower amount, such Mm. as beta-cap. So little tricks such as that are, are, are worth knowing. I think I would always, when treating eczema on the face, I tend to find that steroid ointments are always preferable for a reason I've never really established why, but um, they always seem to be preferable to the same steroid in cream form. So I tend to give my topical steroids for the face as an ointment. And also when treating eczema on the genital area, creams are definitely preferred by patients because none of us would be would be particularly keen on using something stickier like an ointment on the skin of the gentle area. One other little practical tip when using uh, emollients in very hot weather is you can advise the patient to keep their moisturiser in the oh, fridge. That's amazing. Because then it's lovely and cooling when they go to put it on. Because eczema is often much itchier in hot weather simply because hot weather in the middle of the night hot weather tends to make anything itchy feel even more itchy so being able to nip downstairs and get a a, a lovely cold emollient out of the fridge is often appreciated so that that's one a trick to know um so we've talked about moisturizers and emollients and we've talked about steroids how do you manage flares of eczema Well, the first thing I'd try and establish is the most likely reason for the skin flaring. Check that the patient's management plan is as I think it is. Just because you've prescribed something for a patient doesn't mean that's what they're actually using. It may just be, for example, that you've given them a soap substitute, but they're using bubble bath. Or they're pouring the bubble bath in with the soap substitute, because I've come across that a lot. It may just be that they don't particularly like the feel of the moisturiser that they've been prescribed and they're not using it enough because we would like them to be using it at least twice a day, if not four times a day. It may just be that they're putting their topical steroid on and then immediately putting the moisturiser over the top. And as we've discussed, that'll reduce the effectiveness of the topical steroid. So I'll always, at some point in the consultation, be going through what they're using, checking that they've not started to use something new that I didn't know about that, that may may not be suitable. Then, if I've established that the management plan's good, I'll then start to consider whether there might be secondary infection, particularly bacterial mm. infection, because this is this is so common. We've all got, the majority of us have staph or strep living on the skin. And when it's on the surface of the skin, that type of commensal infection is not a problem. But if staph or strep gain access to the dermis and it, that can easily happen with skin where, where eczema is present because in every dry or broken area or every area that gets scratched, it's very easy for bacteria to access the dermis. Then the skin can become very, very inflamed. And you'll tend to find that the skin becomes redder. Good control of eczema will, will be lost overnight, lost in a very short space of time. The skin will become much itchier, much redder. More areas will appear scabbed or crusted. And quite often you might see pustules if you look closely and the eczema might be wet in areas or even blistering. 
But just the history that eczema that was previously well controlled has all of a sudden just flared overnight should really raise your suspicion as to secondary bacterial infection by staph or, or, or strep. Another thing to think about is whether the patient has been in contact with uh, irritants that have exacerbated their eczema. So somebody that's just bought a new pet, for example. In many cases, you may not get a clear indication from the history. It's obviously worthwhile asking the patient what they think because they may have ideas that are very reasonable, very relevant and equally. They may have some misunderstanding. They may feel it's down to something that they've eaten that you may be able to discuss with them and, and discount. So according to what the, what I think the likely cause is, I'm going to treat infection if I think it's there and I'm going to treat it with oral antibiotics. I rarely use topical antibiotics in treating atopic eczema because for one thing, you, I would only ever use top, topical antibiotics, for example, fusidin, if the, if the infected area were very, very localised. Okay. Mm. And really when a patient has eczema, they're going to have eczema on many areas of the body. You can't really, by examination, tell where the eczema is and where the eczema isn't. And you can end up chasing the infection around the body if you start to treat it with fusidin. The other thing is that, of course, the skin will become resistant to fusidin very, very quickly. Another factor which makes the topical antibiotics uh, problematic to use in patients with eczema We've already gone to the trouble of about educating the patient to use their topical steroid just on the days when the eczema is present, missing it off when on, on any given area when the eczema is not there. Now, if you then prescribe something like Fusibet yeah. to treat what you think is infected eczema on an adult's limbs, with a course of antibiotics, you want them to take it as a course. You want them to take it twice a day, every day mm. until clear. You don't want them using it intermittently, which is exactly what they should be doing with a topical mm. steroid. So for all these reasons, I tend to favour oral antibiotics, either flucloxacillin in adults or in children. I would tend to avoid flucloxacillin because it tastes yeah, bitter and horrible. <laughs> yeah, I would tend to go with either erythromycin or clarithromycin unless I've got proven resistance to those, in which case I warn the, pa the parent that flucloxacillin suspension tastes horrible and to be forearmed <laughs> with a bribe or whatever's required to get their, to get their child yeah. to take the antibiotic. And very often, as long as you warn them that the stuff tastes horrible, they, they can yeah. preempt yeah. the situation. I incidentally, if, if a patient has been getting frequent exacerbations of the frequent flares of their eczema due to infection, it really is worthwhile thinking about where this infection is coming from. So in an adult, it's worthwhile considering that they may harbour staph or strep in their nose. Mm -hmm. And of course, as I'm sure you know, when you give a course of oral antibiotics, that doesn't treat nasal commensal mm -hmm. bacteria. So they will still be harbouring staph or strep after your course of flucloxacillin. So it's worthwhile considering giving them a, giving them a seven-day course of naseptin. So naseptin cream for the nose four times a day into both nostrils for seven days. And similarly, in children, it's worthwhile treating their carers because it may well be that carers are transmitting their own commensals onto the child's skin when applying emollients. I used to go to the trouble of taking nasal swabs from patients or from carers and then waiting for the results and then treating with naseptin. But I've actually decided now it's actually more pragmatic just to get on and treat with naseptin. Something else to think about is whether they've actually contaminated their emollients with bacteria. Now, of course, all emollient creams come with a pump on the top, don't they? So you can't actually dip your fingers into the tub of cream. But, but emollients that are ointments come in a tub and you really should educate your patients very right at the beginning when you prescribe ointments not to put their fingers into the tub. That they should be using a teaspoon or a wooden spatula, but teaspoon is something they've all got at home. So, so no fingers in tubs is a good rule to, to train the patients to, to, to mm. keep the fingers out. Lovely. So thinking of other treatments for eczema, Often you find patients have had a course of 
or will be prescribed topical calcineurin inhibitors. Um, so we're wondering where they fit in. Um, so I wanted to phrase this question right because you hear things like protopic and allodel being thrown around. So I thought I'd attempt an explanation of these. So these are drugs that can reduce inflammation, but they're not steroids. And they're things like tacrolimus. A brand of tacrolimus would be protopic. Is that right? Protopic is the only brand of tacrolimus. Brilliant. Yes. So or permicrolimus, such as Elodel. So when would you consider those and how do you decide? They're very, very useful products, actually. We're talking about three different products okay. here. There are only three. We've got Protopic, which is topical tacrolimus, right. and Protopic comes in 0.03% or 0.1%. And there is Elodel, which comes as a cream, Protopic 0.03% is licensed more than at more than two years of age. The 0.1% strength is licensed from 16 years and above. And Elidel cream is licensed two years and above. But I have to say, I find these I find these products, particularly Protopic 0.1%, so useful that I frequently prescribe them off license, out of license, un- under the age group, under the ages for which they are licensed. So nowadays, I don't ever prescribe protopic 0.03%. I only ever prescribe 0.1%. And I'll prescribe that when I'm treating children, as well as treating adults. I only ever tend to use Elidel cream if I particularly want a cream formulation because unfortunately protopic doesn't come as a cream at right. all and that that'll largely just come down to patient preference now protopic 0.1% the biggest use of it that i have for this is when treating facial eczema because it is a way of reducing use of topical steroids on the face particularly on the eyelids and around the eyes because the risk with using the higher potencies of topical steroids or even just using moderate topical steroids over any length of time close to the eyes is um, the risk of glaucoma. I'm particularly keen to do anything which reduces the use of topical steroids on the face round round the eyes. And in fact, protopic 0.1% ointment does seem to be particularly effective and it's very it's very well tolerated by the majority of patients it's worthwhile knowing that when you apply protopic ointment to the skin it typically produces a sort of flushing warming sensation for about 30 minutes now the patients will sometimes use the word burning and of course patients with atopic eczema are acutely sensitive to anything that feels warming when applied to the skin because they're very worried that it's going to cause an exacerbation of their eczema so you do have to forewarn them that this is normal it doesn't mean to say that they're reacting badly to the protopic it's something that we would expect but it can go hand in hand with actually then getting a very good response to the protopic so I'll often use protopic 0.1% ointment when treating facial eczema on children or adults As I said before, that's off-license when it's under the age of 16 years. And judging by the degree of improvement that I then see in that patient, I may well extend the use to other areas of the body. I've, I've noticed that patients tend to fall into one of two groups. They either respond really, really well to protopic or not that well. It's it's usually quite a distinct difference. So, If I see that they've reacted really well to protopic on the face, I'll introduce it in managing their eczema on other areas of the body and then be guided by results as to whether we go more with protopic or more with the topical steroid. It's worthwhile noting with protopic ointment that it's applied once a day, it's applied in the evening and kept on overnight. It was also the case that when protopic was first licensed, when the preliminary uh, trials were done, it wasn't used in conjunction with any emollients. It was used alone. And so when it was first licensed, the license stated that it should not be applied after emollients. 
Now, of course, by the time we get to this stage in a patient's management, we've already educated the patient to be using lots of emollients and to be putting the topical steroids on afterwards. Yeah. I think for a long period of time, I would I would ask my patients to put the protopic on before the emollient and to maybe wait half an hour before they put the emollient on. Nowadays, I don't feel it makes any difference whatsoever, and I will get them to carry on putting their emollient on first and then put the protopic over the top because I've not seen any difference in uh, efficacy by putting the protopic on before as opposed to after the emollient. One thing I would say, though, is that protopic and elidel should not be used when the skin is actively infected. And this is because of the fact that it is reducing the immune response of the skin to that infection. So theoretically, could potentially make the skin infection worse. So I would inform the patient that they should always keep their topical steroid to hand. And if the skin is infected and they're being treated with antibiotics, stop the protopic until the infection is cleared and then they can, can reintroduce it once again. Um, and just, um, I, I don't think it's been said there, but protopic and steroid shouldn't be used together? Oh, yeah. No, that's a very good question. It depends upon the effectiveness of each on that patient's on that patient's skin. I have a lot of patients in whom they will still use their topical steroid in the morning. And one advantage is that topical steroids come in cream form and they will then use their protopic ointment at night. Okay. So the protopic is having a steroid sparing effect in that way. And uh, one more way in which I may use protopic ointment is that it's been shown that even when the skin is completely clear, by applying it on two nights of the week to the areas where the eczema typically recurs, you can actually reduce the incidence of future flares. And is it, um, just thinking about the very junior GPs that are coming out, is it appropriate for GPs in primary care to be prescribing these? I think it is. I do think it is. But I think you always need to be starting with a good emollient regime, the substitute, then the moisturiser, and and the moisturiser, I should say, and then getting control with topical steroids. Then in patients in whom you don't feel you have sufficient control with topical steroids, maybe because you're not achieving steroid-free days, Mm -hmm. especially on the face, then try introducing protopic ointment or elidel cream and see how you get on with that. But yes, it is entirely appropriate for these products to be used in primary care. That's great. Thank you. That was just worth clarifying and a feeling that might be a question. Um, so just a question that we have um, about kind of allergy potential symptoms, because you can get a lot of patients coming in and asking about that and it can be quite tricky um, to deal with. So what patients might you be concerned would have actual allergy-driven symptoms um, within the picture of eczema? It's a very good question because I think a majority of patients or parents feel that eczema is largely driven by having allergies to something, whereas in fact it is a minority. In infants, we've got to consider the possibility of casmic protein allergy If that is present, then you invariably tend to find that there are also gastrointestinal symptoms. So frequent reflux, failure to thrive. Mm. I think as children get that little bit older and they've weaned cow's milk protein allergy and, and food allergies in general become much, much less common. They're not common to start with, but they can become less and less common as the child gets older. If... If eczema is due to an allergic reaction in children, there is invariably a history of other problems such as urticaria or angioedema or even anaphylaxis, such as in the case of a a nut allergy. Mm -hmm. Thinking more generally in terms of older patients, teenagers and thinking of adults, I would always tend to be suspicious that the patient may have developed an allergic reaction. If they previously had very well-controlled eczema that then suddenly seems to change and, and becomes very hard to control, very poorly controlled. Because it's important to remember that few patients are born with an allergic reaction to anything, that they develop an allergic reaction after repeated contact with an allergen. And atopic patients are, in general, 
more prone to developing allergic reactions. And of course, in the case of adults, once they've developed an allergic reaction, they keep it for the rest of their lives. So eczema that becomes suddenly becomes much, much harder to control, particularly on certain areas of the body, such as the face or the hands, because we put our hands in contact with a much, much wider range of environmental factors than any other part of the body. But of course, with our hands, we also transfer a lot to our face just by inadvertently touching our face frequently, yeah. as yeah. we all do. So in a situation like that, where I find myself having difficulty controlling a patient's eczema, I refer them for patch testing. Now, this testing is done only at tertiary dermatology centres. It's done by placing multiple sticky strips upon the skin, the skin of the back, because the back is the biggest area upon which any testing can be done. And on these sticky strips, on the undersurface of these strips, are put individual doses of potential allergens. They're all stuck onto the skin, kept on for 72 hours, taken off, and then the, the patient attends again and the skin is red. It's important to note that patch testing is completely impractical on children because the children simply wouldn't keep the sticky strips in place. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that under the age of five, they just don't have backs that are big enough to do patch testing mm -hmm. on. So doing allergy testing on children is very, very limited. It can be done in the form of blood tests, as in RAST tests. And to do RAST tests, as I'm sure you know, you've got to really have a good idea what the suspected allergen is because you can only test against specific allergens such as latex. In dermatology, we don't tend to do prick testing by and large, although they do sometimes in the tertiary centres. So yeah, patch testing for adults and older children, but completely impractical on children. Mm. I've talked a lot about the management of atopic eczema, but we mentioned seborrheic eczema at the beginning, and there are some key differences in management. Seborrheic eczema is driven by sensitivity of the individual to a very common commensal yeast. And the reservoir for this yeast, i.e. where the majority of it lives, is on the scalp. When treating seborrheic eczema, light emollients are preferred to greasy emollients, as the latter can make skin so moist that yeast levels increase. It's also very useful to use combined steroid and anti-yeast products, for example, those containing clotrimazole or myconazole. And lastly, ketoconazole shampoo is very helpful. Use this to wash the scalp once a day or when required, and when doing so, advise the patient to use the lather that they obtain to gently wash areas of the face or areas of the body where the, the rash of seborrheic eczema is present before rinsing everything off. That's interesting. Uh, so that's been such a fabulous overview. That's amazing, Rachel. Thank you so, so much. Yeah. There's not a stone left un unturned in terms of the, the practicalities and the basics and the principles of eczema. So it's, it's so fabulous to to get all of that underpinning knowledge and share it. <laughs> I think you can probably tell from the from the length of time that I've I've talked for there <laughs> that one thing I, I come back to time and time again when I'm teaching primary care clinicians is you just can't do any consultation when you're prescribing topical products quickly. We all take it for granted that if we're prescribing an oral medication, we might tell the patient how many times a day to take it and that's it, the job done. We don't need to tell them how to take a tablet and swallow it. But there is so much practical information when you're prescribing topical items in order to get these products used in the best way that you've just got to spend the time. Otherwise, your prescription is more than likely going to be wasted. So um, before we ask you about the take home points from today's discussion, have you got any um, recommendations for resources that you wanted to talk about? And we'll put everything that you that you do and don't talk about on, a, on our episode description so that they're links for people as well. 
Well, I would highly recommend the website for the Primary Care Dermatology Society. It is, as the name suggests, absolutely orientated at primary care management. They've got excellent guidelines for skin conditions such as eczema, and they also run very, very good educational events. I would also recommend for patients, particularly parents of children with eczema, the National Eczema Society, because they too have very, very good very, very good information, good downloads, lots of good resources on there. Um, so I guess, yes, yeah, summing up, what would you like uh, the listeners to take away from today's discussion? I think spending the time to give the patient really good practical explanation and also demonstration as to how their topical products should be used giving them the opportunity to express choice, for example, when it comes to their choice of emollient, prescribing enough to allow them to get the job done. And that's particularly important both for emollients and for topical steroids. And not forgetting that because it's so, because it's essential really that you're going to be prescribing three, four, maybe five different items for your patient to to consider a prepayment certificate for those adult patients that pay a prescription charge because the cost can very quickly ramp up. And if you're not careful, they they go down to the pharmacy with your prescription with five items on and they're trying to decide what they don't need to purchase. So don't forget the prepayment certificate. They'll appreciate that. That's great. Thank you very much, um, Rachel, for chatting to us today about this. I think it's such an important topic. And as Sarah said before, you've covered it so well. Um, so thank you. Thank you for asking. <laughs> So that was really lovely to meet with Rachel again and to talk through a different, really important and massive dermatological topic. Um, what did you take away? Yeah, she was very patient with our um, massive technological <laughs> issues at the end of the episode there. Um, so yeah, I took away, I mean, I've um, been in dermatology clinics with her before and it, her passion for correct treatment of this condition is is fabulous and sort of getting the basics right explaining it well um and I think it really does show so just every question we asked she sort of took it to exactly you know the right places (laughs) and sort of explaining about it so um yeah sort of you know the whole thing that she said about um often we'll tell people when to stop something but what about when to start it particularly with steroids And yeah, her take on steroid use, the underuse. Yeah, it's interesting. It's different, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, compared to what you've been taught. Yeah, I love love the four strengths. That was so good, wasn't it? Oh, with the alcohol comparison. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The the super potent ones are like meths. um yeah no I agree I um I basically written down that everything was just she put everything very clearly um and you're right was very kind of I don't know categorical or something in terms of her thinking it just makes it quite easy to understand um Mm -hmm. I really liked her brick wall analogy um with the kind of um and the lipids keeping things out and keeping things in like that conceptualizes it really nicely for me um and then also she whenever she talked about the um kind of soap substitutes versus the emollients um i remember seeing the presentation about the bath study at the rctb conference yeah, a couple of yeah. years ago um and it was really interesting then yeah. um and and kind of changed my practice at that point to make sure that i was only using emollients as a soap substitute no absolutely yeah i i for some reason i've seen the i i have the printout laminated printout of the steroid ladder and i still didn't really use the emollient ladder very much and now when she's explained oh. the, the the types and when and why you'd use them it's so much clearer <laughs> so, exactly yeah I thought that was just fabulous that you know particular times of the seasons um you know some people who who you're tr- trying to put on greasier emollients but if you start that in summer it's probably not going to really work for them too, you know yeah. things like that so it was and yeah, the other the fridge Put, put it in the fridge, the fridge exactly. fabulous yeah really good advice. and just like even the the concept of prescribing different types of emollient to the same person yeah for different uses i think is quite a strange thinking actually because you just prescribe your emollient and you're going to use this but actually thinking well no what type of emollient can they use in which place and is that going to change over the course of the month and yeah. um and also quantities yeah. of emollients and making sure that patients are getting enough of them yeah that's, that's um, pretty wild lots, lots of learning about emollients <laughs> yeah i really liked um sort of thinking about i don't i i've seen seborrheic eczema in, in infants before 
Um, but I think we're very good at sort of categorizing, oh, this is nappy rash, this is that, this is the other, and actually sort of putting it all together and treating it as one. It's probably quite useful as well. Yeah, yeah. that's and, true. Oh, I loved um, talking about the calcineurin inhibitors and she just explained that so well because I've just heard different things thrown around like, oh, right, okay, this is when you use that. <laughs> yeah, no, she did make it quite clear as to like a kind of instance in which she felt um, comfortable using it. And yeah. and yeah, you're right. Have you t- just heard the terms before and you just think yeah what what can they actually do that's different yeah and i've never understood why why they've chosen which one yeah but i have used them to good effect and yeah they are they are very useful treatments so yeah it's fabulous episode yes it was um so if you want to get in touch with us um there are a couple of ways that you can do that our email address is primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com or you can tweet us and our handle is at pckb podcast um, or you can also fill in our survey um, and we will put the link in the episode description um, if you want an anonymous and fast way to give us some feedback as well yep. till next time on primary care knowledge boost Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. This was recorded in Greater Manchester in 2021. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. Uh, The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.